We'll begin in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, your mo- to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning You may be seated. Would you join me as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word? Our Father, we do ask that you would take your word and you would open our eyes that we may see. And in our seeing, seeing, hear, and in our hearing, do. And by your spirit and for your glory, we ask your blessing uh, on the preaching, on the submitting, and on the obeying of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week at the end of verse 5, we might be left to think that Naomi is all alone. She could have been. She has no husband. Ruth and Orpah have no husband. She has no sons. The reason for their connection to each other is now gone. There's no grandchildren to keep them together. There is every expectation in our society that they might keep in some contact 
but that likely they might all remarry as well and start other families. However, in more Eastern cultures, there's a greater responsibility placed on the children to care for their aging parents. Though this seems like an unusual situation, the reader in that day and place might expect that one of the daughters-in-law would take Naomi in and care for her. The wives are still young. They can remarry, bring along with them their mother-in-law from a previous marriage. The Lord cares for widows. Psalm 146 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Of 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul writes to Timothy and says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's a need to care for those who are in your family. Naomi uh, might have been just that, sensed by Ruth and Orpah, a need to care for their mother-in-law who has nothing and is not in her hometown. And just as all seems lost, Naomi hears of the faithful providence of God that has brought food back to Bethlehem. The house of bread will have bread once again. Uh, Naomi gets up and he leaves Moab with her daughter-in-laws to head back to her hometown. A decade ago, she was leaving Bethlehem, the promised land, for a foreign country because it had food. Now she hears there's food in Bethlehem. Her husband and her uh, had learned to chase where the food was, make a pragmatic decision. If there's no food in the ground here, let's go somewhere else. God, who's God? Let's do what seems practical and wise in the eyes of the culture around us. Verse 6, as we read, attributes this food that is coming in Bethlehem to God visiting his people. The word brings with it a sense of care and provision, a visitation from God. And yet, the truth is that God has always been with his people. Maybe Naomi and her family left Bethlehem before because they were under the impression that famine, drought, means God has left his people, that God somehow does not care. We saw last week that famine meant that the people of Israel instead had left God. God promised in the Old Testament covenant with his people that he would bring famine upon the land if they leave him and go after other gods and do not obey his laws. The truth is that God is always with his people. He never leaves them. He always cares for them more than they can ever know and far more than just bread, far more than just crops. God can provide for his people in the midst of famine because he is God. He uses famine to draw them away from what can only temporarily satisfy them, to bring them back to fullness of joy in following him alone. By taking away bread in a field or a harvest that is as plentiful as someone wants, God might be able to allow them to, instead of finding their fullness in the field, find their fullness of satisfaction in him alone. As we walk through this narrative together, we begin by looking at verse 6, that God does indeed care for his people. In the fields of Moab, word gets to Naomi that God has visited his people with food. The famine is over. The people rejoice. 
It seems immediately that Naomi is packing her bags to go home. The fields of Moab all of a sudden don't look so good when the fields of Bethlehem are full of bread. Naomi is now the leader of her family, and when she hears that the Lord has brought food to his people in Bethlehem, she leaves Moab and heads back to Judah. There's only food in Moab. Food was the only reason that her family came there in the first place. And yet the reality is her family never should have come to Moab in the first place. When food was gone in Bethlehem, the first response of the people of God is to pray, to ask God to provide in the midst of famine, to remind themselves of their solidarity as a people together, trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of God. The God who provided food in the wilderness can certainly provide food in the midst of famine. For the people of Israel, there is so much more for them in the promised land. There is security, there is family, traditions, there is worship, and there's Almighty God. God is absent in the land of Moab. Those things were always there, but Naomi and her husband had rejected those things, left the land of God because they had a wrong view of God. Simply because they couldn't find food, it left them to wander to a foreign land for food, not trusting in the God who provides Brothers and sisters, there are things that are more important than food. That's sometimes hard for me to get my head around. I love food. I enjoy the smell of it, the making of it, the eating of it, all things surrounding food. But there are things that are far more important than food. God has visited his people, and Naomi packs up everything to leave. What is it that God is doing in the midst of this woman who has left her hometown has left the people of God to come to Moab. The daughters-in-law are coming with her. They might not have anywhere else to go. Their speech seems to show that they are coming so that they can care for Naomi. The reasons for moving to go be with Naomi, with her people, are far more respectable than when Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem to come to Moab. The destination of Judah is far greater than Moab was itself. God cares for his people. We see that in verse 6 as he visits, visits them again with bread. And here comes Naomi and her family unit now heading back to the promised land. We see it also in the next seven verses. As we look at Naomi wanting to be alone. The daughters-in-law are going with her. What's left here? We want to care for you. But if you've ever moved to another state or another part of the country, a long distance away, you know that there's a lot of frantic packing that happens and a long list of details not to forget. And then on moving day, you hop in the truck, and what do you have? A lot of windshield time. A lot of time to think. A lot of time to think in the quiet maybe when the family is napping and dad is driving, the hum of the interstate is keeping you going. You start thinking about the details of when you get there. And this might also happen on a long road trip. What are we going to do when we first get there? Or where are we going to stop to eat? What's my next rest stop? When will the children wake up again? How are we going to be received when we move into our new town? Where are the children going to go to school? What's it going to be like when we get there? Now imagine that you're moving to another country where you speak a different language. And you're wondering, has my language training, if any at all, been acceptable up to this point? 
Do I really know the language that the people speak when they get there? I, I read some stuff in a book. I heard some stuff online. Is this really how they talk when they get there? The, the local dialect, will, will they understand me? Will the people accept me? Is it safe there? You're moving to another country. Having all of these questions, the author of Ruth portrays this move as a simple pick up their stuff and move. But here are three women, widows, traveling to a foreign country. Now, Naomi has been there before, knows the way, knows what to expect, but Ruth and Orpah, put yourself in their shoes. They are widows going with their mother-in-law to a different people who serve a different God, who speak a different language. As foreigners, foreigners who they know are despised in the eyes of the people that they're going to live with. Would you go? Would you follow your mother-in-law with no other ties to her right now to a land that you don't know whether you'll be accepted? It might be that their husbands told them some about Judah, the, the people, the sights, the smells, the traditions. But somewhere in that windshield time, strolling on their trip, Naomi starts thinking. And as the author of Ruth begins to say, they've started on their journey. And all of a sudden, at some point in there, it says, but Naomi begins to have a change of mind. Begins to think about her daughters-in-law coming with her. Will they be accepted? Will I be rejected because of them? They're Moabite women. They're not allowed into the temple of the Lord. They're despised in the eyes of my people. How will my people treat them? Should I even bring them? Do they have any hope to come with me? I have nothing to offer them. She begins thinking all of these things. And notice what is not in her mind in any of her conversation with them. Ladies, the Lord will provide for us when we get there. The Lord will go before us and will make a way when we get there. All of Naomi's reasoning to her daughters-in-law about why they should stay in Moab is completely pragmatic. It makes sense, women, to stay here. Go back, she says, to the house of your mother. Go back to the house of your mother. That phrase is only used three times in Scripture, and this is one of them. Another one is found in Song of Solomon, speaking as Song of Solomon does about love and marriage. And also in Genesis 24, when Isaac is going to uh, find his wife, Rebekah, in the house of his mother. In every situation, it's a story regarding love and marriage. It's a striking phrase. We would normally not speak of it in that way. We would say the house of your father. But here it's used to show that Naomi is desiring above all else that they remarry. Their hope in life is solely in their ability to remarry. That is all Naomi can see. That they would find love and marriage again, that they might be happy and have children and be successful, all relies upon them getting married. She is very pragmatic. She says this very thing. She says that she's praying that God would grant them rest. How? In the Lord? In the house of their husband. Naomi's trust is that these women will come to faith in Almighty God, come to put their faith and trust in the God who provides for his people? No. Naomi gives a sort of a blessing or a benediction to the, to the ladies when she asks that God would show them kindness and give them rest in the house of a new husband. She gives them permission to remarry if they needed it. 
but she falls short in blessing them with traditional Jewish blessings. Blessings found like in Numbers 6 about the presence of God being with you, being that of the greatest of blessing for God's people. But simply the blessing of a husband and all that he might provide for them. Naomi, as we see so far, is not a very good covenant child, one who is leading others to be a blessing to other nations. But she's very pragmatic. She says she's too old to marry. She has no husband. She's without hope, as if all of her hope depends upon marriage. It doesn't. What makes it far worse, one author says, for Naomi to contemplate, though, was the fact that these two women are foreigners who would hardly be accepted in polite society in Bethlehem. They're Moabite women who by their very presence would be a constant reminder to Naomi and all those around her when she moves back that she abandoned the promised land, that she married her sons outside the covenant people. Every time she and the people around her would see these women, it would be a reminder of Naomi's sins, she thought. Every time she saw their foreign faces, she would be confronted with the heavy hand of God's judgment upon her in the loss of her husbands and her sons. Notice how many times in that quote by Ian Duguid that he says the phrase or the word her. If you look at Naomi, her response is completely narcissistic. Yes, she wants them to be remarried. Yes, she wants them to find fulfillment. But ultimately, it's about Naomi. She says this even more when she actually makes it to Bethlehem and finds out that everything that has happened to her, how could this have been? This is all about me and not about the God of the universe, not about God Almighty. The reality is that while Naomi says she's caring for her daughter-in-laws so that they might go back and remarry, the reality is that she doesn't care for them at all. Naomi is a child of the covenant, which means she's been given the statutes and commands of God. She's one of the people of God. She has grown up in a house that knew who God was. She was taught the Pentateuch. She was taught how to know and understand God and his ways. These women were not. And Naomi in no way is caring for the eternal good of Ruth and Orpah but is fixated on her own painful situation and how she can pragmatically fix theirs. Verse 13, I think, is the crux of Naomi's heart right now, where the author says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Once your sake, twice me, me. It is exceedingly bitter to me that the will, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi believes God to be against her. He has, she has grown bitter towards him. Now, as you might imagine, in the midst of all this story of women leaving uh, Moab and, and their families and going back to Judah, and now all of a sudden in the middle or wherever it is on the journey, being told to go back to their homeland and leaving their mother-in-law, there's a lot of crying. There's three women here, and there's a lot of crying that happens twice, it says. The ladies lifted their voices and wept. 
But in the midst of all of the crying, in the midst of all of the pleading, three times Naomi pleads with them to leave. Ruth and Orpah refuse. Three times she gives them pragmatic reasons why they should return. She states there's no hope in her womb of another son, no hope for a husband. So they should leave her, go find a husband and be happy. Well, finally, Orpah makes the sensible move. Orpah makes the decision to leave and go home. Conventional wisdom cheers for Orpah says that this is the best opportunity that you have for success. You're a young gal. Go, go back home and find a young man. Preferably one who is rich, handsome, and can provide children for you. Orpah knew she has the best chance for happiness with her own people and a new husband. Naomi has given permission to the girls to remarry, and if they were smart, they would take it. That's how the world thinks. The same pragmatic thinking is what led Elimelech and Naomi to Moab in the first place. Do what will give you the best chance of survival or success, no matter the cost. Everyone in Moab would say of Orpah's choice, that makes sense. That girl has a good head on her shoulders. And guess what? After Orpah leaves Naomi and Ruth, she is never heard again from in biblical history. It's likely or possible that Orpah could have gone back, married a great guy, had a house full of babies, and lived a long, happy life. But we will never know. What we do know is that no matter how happy Orpah might have been, if Orpah stayed in the religion of Moab and lived apart from God, then her end is separation from God. And her decision was not at all eternally wise or good. Contrast Orpah's decision with Ruth. In fact, contrast Naomi's speech and the way Naomi talks with Ruth. Uh, here we have Naomi is desiring that these girls would go. She could be on her own when she comes back to her hometown, but Ruth commits herself to Naomi. Verses 15 through 18. Naomi tries to get Ruth to follow the path of Orpah. And in so doing, isn't this interesting? Naomi makes clear what we all feared that by returning to her people, Orpah would be returning to their gods. How can Naomi be okay with this? How can Naomi condone this, encourage these women to do this, go back to your people and to your gods? She knows what that means. And how can it be that she would allow the want this? Naomi's intentions are clear. She truly cares for herself. But Ruth is not Orpah. Ruth is not Naomi. Ruth does not seem to be driven by only pragmatism or affinity to her people. Ruth is different. She's been changed. Ruth will not leave Naomi. Instead, she commits herself to Naomi with wording like a marriage covenant. Ruth is giving up everything to come with Naomi. Ruth is giving up her life, dying to her identity as a Moabite to become one with Naomi for no possibility of return in love or money. The word that's used of Ruth clinging to Naomi is the same that's used in Genesis 2.24, where it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That covenant language is meant to be used by the author here to show that this wording of what Ruth is doing is not just she's going to stick with her. I've got nothing else. 
I'm just going to stay with this lady. No, the author's intention is that we begin to see more covenant relationship language of what, what it is that Ruth is doing. Ruth is committing herself to Naomi, to Naomi's people, to Naomi's God. And Ruth even states in covenant language that if she reneges on her agreement, that God can take her life. <laughs> She's very different from Naomi, very different from Orpah. And what does Ruth receive in return? More crying, hugs, thank you. What a girl you are. What a sweet thing. Orpah left me and you're staying. I love you. Naomi's been talking a lot up to this point. Ruth gives her speech of commitment to Naomi and guess what? Nothing back. Ruth receives nothing Silence. Naomi, who has talked up to this point, is quiet. Naomi, who wanted them both to return to their people, to their gods, and ultimately to eternal destruction, apart from knowing the Almighty God, says nothing. No, praise the Lord for the work he's done in you, to bring you to redemption, that you would come with me in covenant faithfulness to Almighty God. Nothing of the sort. Naomi says nothing. Well, let's continue. They finally make their trip. Verses 19 through 21. They reach the end of their trip, their home in Bethlehem. As they reach Bethlehem, the whole city is abuzz because of them. When the woman come to, women come to Naomi, she acts as though she's come alone. Did you notice in her language again? It's all me, me, me. Don't call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She only refers to herself, her troubles, and her new name. Ruth is an embarrassment not worthy of being introduced. How awkward. Do you think that Ruth maybe is wanting to rethink this whole clinging to Naomi thing? For Ruth, things seem to go from bad to worse when they reach Bethlehem, and this is just day one. Naomi wants them to call her Mara. There's a story in the Old Testament where Mara is mentioned, Exodus 15. It's a place that means bitterness. Israel had just been rescued from the hand of the Egyptians in the Red Sea when they come to the other side and they begin their journey of freedom. We're free from the Egyptians. And what do they do? Almost immediately after the joyful song of Moses and the people as they are rescued from the Egyptians in the Red Sea, the people of Israel find themselves grumbling and complaining. The story is found in Exodus 15, verse 22, where it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah, bitter. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, 
and give ear to his commandments, keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. One would have hoped that Naomi, remembering that story, in her giving herself the name Mara, would have reminded her of God's faithfulness to his people in the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, the water being made sweet, 12 springs of water in the desert. But instead, Naomi looks only at her circumstances and blames God. I am bitter, she says, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. Really? You remember a famine drove them to Moab. You went away full? You had a wicked husband who led you and your family away. Full in what sense? And she says, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Really? What about Ruth who has committed herself to you and your God? What about a daughter-in-law who now desires to know the Almighty? What about you coming back to the covenant people of God in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey? All of a sudden, the cares of circumstances for Naomi and what she's lost has overclouded, overshadowed everything that she has in her God. Naomi cares more for her circumstances than she does her God. Naomi cared more for herself than she does Ruth. She recites several times how God has not been kind to her, how God has dealt bitterly with her. She forgets that God has been so faithful to her over the years. It was Naomi who disobeyed. It was Naomi who left the promised land. It was Naomi who did not trust God. Naomi is not repentant over her Moabite experience. It doesn't seem as she talks to the ladies. But instead, she has dug in her heels. Naomi sees God as the guilty one. God is the problem. God is unfaithful. God brought her trouble. God has dealt bitterly with her. And God has made her to be empty. It is all God's fault. In all these accusations, Naomi is not even remembering why she's back in Bethlehem. She's back because God has been faithful to his people. God has been faithful to bring bread. God has been faithful to bring food. In the midst of Naomi's complaining at the bitter providence of God, we get a glimpse of blessing that is on the horizon. In the last verse, the author, in stating that these ladies have made it back to Bethlehem, tells us a time in which they came. And it just so happens that Naomi and Ruth show up in Bethlehem at the time of the harvest. The crops have come up, the rains have come, and now is time to harvest. Now is a time of plenty and blessing. The fields were empty, and now they're full. Naomi was empty, but she has Ruth. Naomi was empty in the land of Moab. Even when she had a husband and two sons, she was empty. And now she has the people of God in the land of God under God's rule and blessing. And Naomi is rich. The reality is Naomi was never truly empty. She always had the Lord with her. It was Naomi who had left and Naomi who had not trusted 
So what do we learn when we look at a story like this in a chapter that looks a lot condescendingly on Naomi? But what can we learn? Well, every one of us, every single one of us is like Ruth and Orpah. We are a stranger and foreigner to God's kingdom. We have nothing in us that deserves grace. We cannot just slip into salvation. The Bible says that on our own, we are enemies of Christ. We are sinners by birth. We have all chosen to go our own way. We walk according to the prince of the power of the air. But we need to be redeemed. We need someone to come from God's kingdom and show us the way of salvation. Ruth and Orpah needed Naomi and Elimelech to teach them who God was so that they would come to trust him as their covenant God. And yet one greater than Naomi came for us. The king himself came unto his own. God himself visited us in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, who is God with us. Even though he was rejected and mocked and killed by his people, Jesus comes for us. He came to us to redeem us, to set us free. Some will not care. Some will not care that Jesus has come. Some will not care and follow Jesus, but will, like Orpah, go back to what is comfortable to their God and to their people. But may we, like Ruth, give ourselves wholly to God in faith and repentance, in covenant faithfulness to him and his word. Naomi would not acknowledge her sins, but may we not only know that we have sinned, but repent of those sins and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Not only is every one of us like Ruth and Orpah in some way, but too often we too, as the people of God, can be like Naomi. We can care only for ourselves, not those who are outside of Christ. There are no outsiders or Moabites in God's economy. All people, nations, tribes, languages, all are welcome at the table and at the cross in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, American or African, but we are all one in Christ. So let us take the gospel to everyone, to those who are outside of Christ, caring more for their eternal salvation than we do their temporary success. May we be what Naomi was not. May we go to others, not just to care for ourselves and find food for our own table, but to spiritually be a meal and feeding others that they might come to Christ and be nourished in the bread of life and in the water, which when one drinks, they will never thirst again. Too often we can become like Naomi and care only for ourselves and not for those outside of us. This can be true of us as well as a nation, can't it? Even us in our own country, we can begin to think only of ourselves and those like us, not caring for the refugee or the foreigner who comes in need, whether they have come in ways we think they ought to or not. Let us take the opportunity to see them the way that Christ sees them. They might be in need of Christ Well, we can be like Ruth and Orpah. We are like Ruth and Orpah, every one of us, strangers and foreigners to God's kingdom. Too often we can be like Naomi. Number three, we care far more about our discomfort than we do growing in holiness. Naomi cared far more about the circumstances that had gone awry 
that God had done and was bitter over God's providence, she saw it in a bitter way. She did not see God removing things from her hand that she might return home. She didn't see how good God was in removing her husband and sons so that she might see in Moab, I have nothing, and return to God and his people. Naomi only saw bad coming out of the circumstances God brought. She didn't see what Solomon writes in Proverbs 3 when he says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his disp- of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as, the fa- as a father the son in whom he delights. God does not ordain difficulty to harm you, but God in his kindness ordains goodness that may look to you now like pain and suffering, but in God's plan is wonderful. What may look to you like temporary difficulty, suffering, asking God why, or even worse, causing God to be the guilty one, causing yourself to grow bitter against him, thinking that God and his inability to control things has allowed this to come to you. No, in God's goodness, he ordains all things. And God ordains that goodness would come to you. And sometimes the vehicle for that is difficulty. And sometimes the vehicle for that is suffering. And in Naomi's situation, it was death. <clears throat> God's goodness to Naomi and Ruth seemed very hard in the beginning. But just imagine without Naomi's emptiness... She never would have left Moab and returned to the land of promise. She would have missed out on greater blessings of having a prime place in the history of redemption. The end of Ruth is that Ruth, a Moabite woman, is in the line of Christ himself. She would have missed all that would have been hers in Christ if she only would have been focused on her circumstances and the God who brought difficulty to her. But instead, God brought kindness. And the vehicle of that was difficulty. In the same way, God brought his son Jesus through a lot of difficulty, through a mother who was shamed maybe the rest of her life for being perceived as a harlot who came to have a child and wasn't married to the man that she was going to be married, who everybody would have thought that something wrong had happened, something immoral Uh, to being Jesus growing up in difficulty and being forsaken. Jesus being murdered, put on the cross. Jesus was willing to take on our sins, take on all the difficulty and suffering of death for us that we might be made free. And Jesus cared more for our own salvation than he does his discomfort. We learn about God's ordaining goodness, especially through the cross. God's ordaining goodness to you that looks like pain and suffering, but brings about eternal redemption and reward. That shapes how we view discomfort, hospitalization, tragedy, sorrow, waiting, longing, expectations, and difficulties. Shall I take from your hand a blessing and not welcome any pain? 
There's a song written by John Newton in 1779 called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And it says this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he would answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in, the way, in, in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. We are too concerned for our own discomfort instead of seeing the good ordaining hand of God in bringing us to holiness, to seeking our greatest joy in Christ. And lastly, we too easily forget the faithful works of God in the millions of small things. Brothers and sisters, let us read the scriptures over and over again. Let us remind us ourselves of the gospel over and over again, that we remember the good and faithful works of God to us who were sinners undeserving of his grace, to how God has ordained goodness for you, that you received as good, so that when you see God's goodness that comes to you in forms that look bad, you have a whole host, a whole bank account that is full of the faithful works of God to you. Read the scriptures. Write them down. Remember the gospel again, who you were in, apart from Christ and who you are now in Christ, so that when difficulty comes, you cling to the cross and you cling to Christ. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we ask that you would continue to work in us by means of your word, continuing to remind us of a story like this that we maybe have heard many times, maybe some for the very first time, but probably many times for most of us. And help us to see in it afresh the gospel and how you work in light of your people to bring about ultimate good in them. Through pain and through difficulty, you've brought us to redemption. Through pain and through difficulty, you have brought us to delight in holiness and in growing more, to find our fullness of joy and satisfaction in Christ and not in temporary things. And through pain and difficulty, you have given us eyes like the eyes of Christ. We pray that keep us from only being concerned of ourselves, but help us to look outside of ourselves and be able, as Christ has, put the needs of others above his own. Christ, who came and sacrificed his life 
for our sins and our sinful soul. May we too have eyes for others, that they would come to faith in Christ, sacrificing, if need be, our lives for the eternal good of those who now stand apart from Christ, that they would come to rejoice in the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. Father, we are thank you, thank you that you are a faithful God, that we can trust the same God of the scriptures who spoke all the way back in Genesis 1 and before the foundations of the world is the same God that we worship and read of this morning. A God who is faithful then will be faithful now. And we ask that as we move into this time of taking the Lord's Supper, that you would be uh, with us, you would be with Bob as he uh, leads us to the table and fences it for us and invites us to gather, that you would meet us, continue to work in and through us, helping us to confess our sins and come boldly to the throne of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.